When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, December 4th. On today's show, it's part two of award show season here at Crack Rackets. This time, we're recapping the 2023 ATP season. What a year it was. Another three major singles titles for Novak Djokovic. Carlos Alcaraz defeating Djokovic, handing him his one loss in a five-set thriller in the Wimbledon final. Plenty of other fun storylines as well. Of course, Yannick Sinner dominating the home stretch of the year. You had the rise of a couple of French teenagers, most notably Arthur Fee, who of course will compete in the next-gen finals or has already competed by the time you are listening to this podcast. The point is there are plenty of fun things for us to look back upon as we look back at this 2023 ATP season. And the best way we believe to look back on any year is by offering awards for that season. So, of course, on today's show, it's our 2023 ATP Award Show. And joining us on this podcast, much as they did for the 2023 WTA Award Show, are two of our returning champions, certainly award-winning guests in our minds here at Cracked Rackets. Let's start on the opposite side of where we started last time. You know this guest best as a spicy hummus with a braised short rib in the center. Of course, he's a host of Monday Match Analysis, host of 3A Tennis Show, host of oh so many things at Tennis Channel. It's our dear friend Gil Gross joining us once again. Gil, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing today, my friend? Much better now that you've finally shaved. Yeah, well, I did it for you. And again, November is over. I feel free. My lip movement appropriate. And it should help me speak, I suppose, better on this podcast moving forward. Honestly, it's a win for all of us, isn't it, Gil? It is. And it's it's always a win seeing DK back-to-back nights. Yeah, and there it is. Your spoiler of who is joining us as well on the podcast. Once again, of course, you all know him as an editorial producer for all things Tennis Channel, Tennis.com, returning champion, and essentially a co-host of our mini-break podcast here in 2023, the most eligible bachelor in New York. It's David Kane. DK, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing tonight, my friend? I am so sorry I'm late. I was on a date. I hope one of our... <laughs> co-host in particular isn't too jealous but don't worry there's plenty of me to go direct there is plenty of me to go around well that's good to know and certainly we appreciate how much you give to us here at cracked rackets i guess you have two jewish men on the podcast so you'll have to speak to this argument pretty solo is it too early december 1st is when we're recording this podcast to have the christmas tree or new york equivalent up as i see in your background i was gonna say it's a very pointed question and i (laughs) They they started selling the Christmas trees right before okay. Thanksgiving at Whole Foods and they promptly sold out. And I thought, oh, my oh, mine, I missed my chance. And then December one, they were back. And I said, I have to I have to pick up my tree and I decorated it, which is to say I threw some lights on it, put a star on top and 
I wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas. Mm, we appreciate it. Certainly lively. Gil, you're a man of culture. Too soon? Too soon. Ooh. That's okay, though. I mean, I, I understand the functionality of it. Um, and, you know, DK is not, you know, but again, it's not it's not his fault, right? It, because the Christmas trees, I am seeing them around. Uh, so they are clearly in demand. And uh, I understand the need to to get yours. So we'll call it a non-flagrant violation. But there's a reason I introed Gil first on tonight's show. Um, no, it's great to have you both back, and I appreciate it. That's a lively environment for tonight's podcast. Where again, we're running you through the 2023 ATP awards we want to hand out. We'll get to some traditional categories: Player of the Year, of course, Newcomer of the Year, Comeback Player of the Year. We'll get to our fun categories as well. What were the biggest disappointments? Who are the top five next-gen ATP prospects? And of course, a more broad look at that category. We'll talk most improved, best rivalry, and so much more. The place, though, where I want to start tonight's award show is where we ended our WTA award show. I think this is the best table setter before we get into any individual categories, and that is to offer a grade on this 2023 ATP season. Now, I recapped some of the highlights already in the intro for this show. Obviously, it's a year where Novak Djokovic goes 27-1 and at the majors. He won all but one possible set, a five-set thriller at Wimbledon. Certainly his match with Elkarez in the Cincinnati final, probably the best match we saw all season long. But there are other things you can turn to if you'd like to. You have Medvedev's February. You have Sinner's post-US Open run. You have Holger Runa's clay court season, which, again, sneaky, excellent. A lot of different things you can turn to. Some fun movement, obviously, beyond the top 25 as well, if you want to get into the Chris Eubanks, the Ugo Umbers, Adrian Manorinos of it all. It was a fun year. Gil Gross, I start with you. Grade this 2023 ATP season. I would give it a B. I think there was a mixed bag. There was some good. There was some There was some meat left on the bone. I mean, I, I think we did lo- lose like two of the main needle movers of 2022, basically for the season in Nadal and Kyrgios. You got to remember, and and right now it feels, you know, now that we've gone through the season, it feels like, yeah, they were out of the picture. That was almost a given. But no, coming in, we thought Rafa would probably play a big role. Nick would probably play a big role. And, uh, you know, they they certainly each in very different ways bring a lot. Um, that said, you know, Alcaraz kind of backed up last year. The rivalry stuff with Djokovic was awesome. Uh, that played out in really the best possible way after they didn't play at all. Um, until Roland Garros. After that, we got plenty of it, which was great. Uh, you know, Medvedev was kind of back in the fold as an elite player. And the development of Sinner has been fantastic to watch. So I know that's kind of top-centric, uh, but that's why I feel like, you know, yeah, some stuff was great, but could it have better? Could have Alcaraz have played Australian Open? Could Nadal or, or Kyrgios have been a little bit healthy? Yeah. David Kane. I think I was harsher um, in my assessment of the WTA. I think I gave them a B minus or a B. And so I do think things ran more smoothly on the ATP tour overall. So I think I would give it more of a B plus. I mean, I think on one hand, it, at the top of the game, we did have a lot of interesting names, but at the same time, we had ultimately one player be very, very dominant, which I don't know how great that is for the health of the tour, especially when we never quite know how much longer that that particular player is going to keep playing. But um, in terms of quality of matches, 
the quality of rivalries that we saw develop between Alcaraz and Djokovic. It was still a pretty high level season, perhaps not a perfect season. It goes back to what we had said a couple of weeks ago that, you know, the thing about a golden era is that not every year can be golden, you know, so there's that. Yeah, I think I'm somewhere in between you two. I'd lean more B plus than B. My case would be this felt like a table setting season. And I do think above all else, it has to start and we'll talk about it with player of the year. We saw a guy win three slams and make four major finals. That doesn't happen very frequently in ATP Tour history, that that player was Novak Djokovic, who is 36 years old, makes the accomplishment that much more remarkable that you can make a legitimate argument. He is playing better tennis at times than maybe he did in 2015. I'm not saying match in, match out, but maybe his peak levels might be a little bit higher with the newfound aggression he's forced to play with and execute so well at this stage of his career that that is even a conversation and happened within the fabric of this year that limits how low the floor can drop in a year like this. But it does feel like a table-setting season in the sense that, yes, Alcaraz beat Djokovic once. It was only once. And we still really haven't seen him play the Australian Open uh, at all in his career. And, you know, again, he's answered a lot of questions. He's on pace to do a lot of things. He won another major this year, conquered the Djokovic at a slam, which is the hardest task to do. He had, no doubt, something in the A's with his year. Maybe A-, minus, maybe A, wherever you want to lean. But he won a major this year. He did the job. With House Sinners coming up on the end of the year, you feel like 2024 could be really special for him. And then why you might lean B instead of B plus is 2024 is looking like it might be a really big year for the original next-gen crew. The guys like Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, who are all starting to move into their mid to late 20s. You feel like that window, it's probably got to be right now, right? To capture a major before Sinner, Alcaraz, maybe Aruna really get going. All these storylines are percolating. There are other things as we get more in depth with some of our categories, but that's why I lean B plus over B. Gil Gross, you have a response here? Yeah, I mean... That, that's an interesting comment about that generation. The problem with feeling like this is a table setting year for for them is that like none of them trajectory wise are really showing us anything, right? Like Zverev, I would say level. Tsitsipas went a little down this year. Uh, it can go back up, right? Like we saw that with Medvedev a couple of years ago. Uh, and in where, February this year, how he immediately picked things back up after a disastrous well, January. That's what I mean. And and Tsitsipas can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't, I don't he? really get that. I mean, Medvedev's been number one oh, and won a slam. I mean, it's I don't, tr- true. The confidence sometimes feels misplaced. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. But can he get back to being world number four and have a great clay court season? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think I agree with you in the sense that I don't see the trajectory, but I also maybe what Grusk is saying is that it's a make or break year for them, not necessarily that it's going to happen or that we think there are hints that it's going to happen for the three of them because I, I would not say that those exist. This is why I keep him around. He's the Gruskin translator at this point. Gil. That is exactly the point I am trying to make. I'm a mediator. Think, I'm, I'm literally right in between you no, two right now on the Zoom. Be- because why you'd go B is like Casper kind of had a poopy year. Like, yeah, he made a Roland Garros final. That's really it. Tsitsipas made an Australian really that. final. That's really it. Like, again, Tommy Paul had Alex Diemenauer maybe had career seasons, but is that career season evidence that their ceiling is like 11, 12 in the rankings where they finished? And look, we haven't even gotten into the Ben Shelton of it all again. There's some really promising prospects on the horizon. You look for that original 96 to 98 crew. 
2024, the youngest of them is turning 26. That's just math. That's how it works. And these other guys are clearly getting better. Look at what Sinner has done, Runa has done at the end of these last two years. There's some urgency as we approach 2024. Last word goes to you, Gil Gross. And it's a big year for Djokovic yeah. because of the Olympics, mainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's there's other stuff, but I, I think that feels really big for him. And uh, I think the main money for, for Novak is going to be made during clay court season. Uh, Roland Garros is the most difficult major for him to win. I still think that's the case, even though the Alcaraz thing with kind of flipped with uh, Alcaraz winning at Wimbledon, Djokovic winning in Paris. Can't see that happening again. I still think the French is the toughest. And then the Olympics back at Roland Garros, uh, plus Wimbledon, you know, revenge. Yeah. Shout out to you, Gil Gross. Many moons ago, you came on this podcast. You predicted Alcaraz's best surface might just be grass courts. It's the best prediction you've given on this podcast. It's one you will continue to get props for because it was so absurd at the time. And lo and behold, he is a Wimbledon champion. So shout out to Gil Gross. But let's move to player of the year. Our first category on our ATP award show ballot. And much like on the WTA award show, I have a menu of options for the spicy hummus with Bray's short rib in the middle, as well as the most eligible bachelor in New York, just to help make things a little bit easier. It also forces them to suffer through my extensive research. I like my ballot to reflect (laughs) everything we saw throughout the course of the season. I like to have tears nominees that are never going to win the award but just deserve shout outs here as we reflect do we need a menu for atp player of the year though you need a menu okay because i have five options here in this category (laughs) two tiers tier two honorable mentions i just want to give them a shout daniel medvedev was alive long enough in the player of the year race this season that he belongs on the ballot it's the honorable mention section but he belongs on the ballot Because Daniil Medvedev was that good in February, was that good in March, wins in Monte Carlo, makes a U.S. Open final playing spectacular over Alcaraz. If some of his finals turn into titles, particularly that U.S. Open, we're talking about him in this conversation. He belongs on the honorable mention. This guy just is, I'm trying to sneak him into as many award categories as possible, honorable mention or otherwise. Grigor Dimitrov had the best year of his career. I'm going to continue to beat that drum as I have for three months here on this podcast. Honorable mention. He's not the player of the year, but he's number one in a lot of people's hearts. So he needs to be on this ballot here again. Honorable mention category. You guys will get your chances to respond. I promise. Tier number one. These are the three actual nominees who, like, if you make the case for player of the year, I'm not going to laugh you out of it. If you want to say Yannick Sinner with how he ended the season, he's your Coco Goff equivalent of what we saw on the WTA side. No major title, obviously, but he beat Djokovic twice in 10 days. And he's just part of the conversation moving forward. I'll hear him at the bottom of my tier one. Alcaraz was there in every portion of the calendar. He was healthy. He did the seemingly impossible, beat Djokovic at a slam in five sets. He was a part of just about every major match of the season. He belongs on this ballot. But yes, obviously the player of the year is Novak Djokovic, 27-1 and at the majors. You know, he trails Medvedev in a lot of categories just by totality of things because he didn't play that many matches this year. But Djokovic was 56-7. and Top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Again, you can make an argument this is one of his three best seasons of his career, and he's 36 years old. He's the player of the year. Gil, first word goes to you. If he didn't play Davis Cup at the end of the year, 
uh, I think his win percentage would have been above 90 for the first time since 2015. Uh, just, just absurdity. And uh, another one I like to look at, just five biggest tournaments of the year. Novak won four of them. He made the final of the other in Wimbledon. I know you gave out the slam thing, but uh, I think it's fair enough to, to throw the ATP finals in there as well, especially because it's a surface that is completely unique to, to the four majors. And I think Novak is far and away the best on that surface. I actually think the gap is larger between Novak and the field in Turin than it is anywhere else. Um, there were some injury concerns early in the year. I mean, in Australia, it was the hamstring. And then clay court season, it was the elbow. And uh, I was starting to kind of wonder, like, mm, is 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 he showing some signs of age finally? Second half of the year, completely healthy, dominant after losing to Alcaraz at Wimbledon. Um, and, and I also think that's part of it. It's like physically you leave the year thinking, nope, no signs of slowing down. David Kane. I don't know. I'm still thinking about how you put Medvedev in a tier below Sinner. That just felt like some <laughs> propaganda bullshit that I can't even like. <laughs> I can't even think about it. Like it's just so insulting. The, the the recency bias that we have taken the last six weeks of the season, we we gave Iga Player of the Year definitively just based off of her last six weeks. We're giving Sinner a Player of the Year nod based on his last six weeks. I you mean, know what? You the know the what? season is eleven months long. You know what? You're right. Yannick Sinner's been re- re- uh, he's been excuse me what's relegated to tier two. It's a one tier one is a two man ballot. I've put Djokovic and Alcaraz in a separate tier. You are correct, David. Okay. Well, I what I will say is that after Wimbledon, I think it was a very intriguing three man race for Player of the Year. Even without Medvedev having won a slam at that point, he'd still been so dominant in the spring, both on hard courts and clay. That you take Djokovic's two slams, Alcaraz's one. You felt like there was a chance for Medvedev to win U.S. Open. There was a a very outside shot of Medvedev stealing Player of the Year if he ran the table on hard courts in the summer. It did not end up happening. And if we're again, if we're going to give Iga Player of the Year based off of her six weeks, we certainly have to give Djokovic Player of the Year based off of his six months plus. I mean, he was pretty much after Wimbledon the de facto Player of the Year, best player on tour, best player in the game. So yeah, it's it's a pretty easy. We found a, a, a very we found an interesting way to talk a lot about something that's very very straightforward. But yes, Novak Djokovic is the Player of the Year. In case you haven't heard. Quick run through the statistics. You look at the players oh in the 50 win club. We've got seven <laughs> players in the 50 win club this year. Fritz, 53. Zvira, 55. Djokovic, 56. Rublev, 56. Sinner, 64. Again, more wins than Djokovic played matches. Hilarious. Alcaraz, 65 and 12. Medvedev, 66 and 18. Medvedev's also got the most top 20 wins. He's got 27. Djokovic, 25. Alcaraz, 24. Sinner, 20. Most top 10 wins. Djokovic, 17 and 5. Sinner, 13 and 6, Medvedev 12 and 9, Alcaraz 11 and 6, Djokovic most titles, he's got 7, Alcaraz 6, Medvedev 5, Sinner 4, Medvedev most finals 9, Djokovic, Alcaraz 8, Sinner 7, Alcaraz 13 semifinals, that's the most, Medvedev 14 quarterfinals, that's the most, Alcaraz though 12 and 1 in the quarterfinals he played this year. I mean, yeah, I went through all these numbers after Djokovic finished the tour finals, all but one tournament, I think he made the quarterfinals or further, and I think he won like more than 60% of the tournaments he played. It was a Pantheon-level season for Djokovic at age 36. He's the player of the year, no doubt about it. I apologize for offending you. Gil Gross, you can have the final word here. Yeah, final word is Grigor Dimitrov finished world number three in 2017. <laughs> no, his peak was higher in 2017. 
he was better from year start to year finish this season. He was outstanding this year. Anyways, we'll talk more about him a little bit later. We can get into that argument. He's the cinnamon roll of the year. Yeah. Fair enough. Let's move to the biggest disappointment, the opposite of that player of the year race. And I think it probably comes down to two guys in this category. Now, I have tiers, of course, the same tiers as yesterday. Should have done more. Could have won slams. Is the window closed? Tier one should have done more. Two guys, I think, have to jump on this list. They're two slam finalists. It's Stefano Tsitsipas and Casper Ruud. Tier two could have won slams. My question is, does anyone qualify in this category? Maybe Daniil Medvedev, the Tier 2 player, in that he could have won that U.S. Open, probably underperformed losing to Korda in Australia, given how good he was everywhere else on hard courts this year. Tier 3, window closed, and it's just the entire next-gen, and then maybe the original next-gen American crew, like Tiafo, Fritz, Paul. Any hope you might have had that one of those guys could capture a major? Has that hope dissipated if you're an American tennis fan? I think those are the tiers of things you have to put on this ballot as you look back in 2023, the big-picture questions. Again, it's another year where there are mostly positives. I'll start with you this time, DK. What's your biggest disappointment? Again, it's all about expectation versus reality. And I still, as as well as the Americans have played in the last 18 months, I don't know if I had that kind of expectation of them to be disappointed. And I still think overall they are trending up in a way that I don't know if a slam is coming for any of them, but they're certainly putting themselves in positions. And I don't see that slowing down necessarily. I mean, I think the biggest disappointment for me would be Casper Ruud because as bad as his year was, he still came very close to winning Rolling Arrows. Like he played decently for about a set and a half against Novak Djokovic in that final. I mean, it wasn't totally, I mean, granted the way Djokovic has played the season wasn't that likely, but you know, at that point in the year, he wasn't that dominant that you feel like, well, there felt like if it was going to happen, it maybe could have happened in that moment. It didn't. And then obviously outside of Rome and Roland Garros, it was just a really rough year for him. Um, tough to say why, other than the fact that his offseason preparation was really interrupted by the exo swing that he did with Rafa. Be interesting in the next couple of weeks to see how players are handling the exhibition schedule it feels like players are not being as aggressive in their in their scheduling maybe i mean we, granted we haven't seen a lot happen yet but it feels like compared to last year but like everyone was like went from the w and atp finals straight into playing exo so i don't think there's that same that same aggressive energy but yeah i think casper is starting ending the year last year at number two not being in the top 10 that's that's a pretty big disappointment yeah, I mean, again, 36 and 23 overall in the year for Casper. The past two years, he had 51 and 58 wins, respectively. Now, he did make another slam final at Roland Garros. You look for him overall in the season, 22 and 8 on the clay, but, you know, again, 14 and 15 on the other two surfaces this season. That is no bueno for a guy who has a lot of quarterfinals, semifinals at high level hardcore events, including, obviously, U.S. Open final in his resume. Gil Gross, is that the pick for you as well, or did you go elsewhere? It, it's not, actually, because um, at least he had a moment. The guy I'm going to choose sure. had no moments. Um, uh, Rude, though, one of my favorite stats with him, he had six. He obviously won six matches last year at the U.S. Open to make the final. Heading into this year's U.S. Open, he had six wins on hard court in total. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it, it was hard to explain because it, it felt like, all right, January, we get it. You're you're toast. You're done. February, you're going to use that as the off season. March, okay, revving up, getting into gear. Clay, are we there yet? Not really. And then, uh, like, grass was such a throwaway, which I it really frustrates me. 
Uh, that's one thing where like, I'm just not shy. I don't shy away from criticizing Kasparud for just not caring about grass. It's like, come on now, you can do it. It's not that different from the other surfaces. It's I not, mean, you don't, I don't know. I, you don't, I see that forehand sit up on grass. I think mm, maybe go see the weekend. Don't bother with Wimbledon. <laughs> uh, I, I get it, but it's too close to everything else. You don't see anybody else who just can win on, on a pretty fast hardcore. Turin semifinals, Miami Open semi-final uh, rather, U.S. Open final. It's like you can do okay at Wimbledon, and it's a major. Anyway, I just wish he'd try uh, a little bit harder to get used to the grass. Uh, my biggest disappointment is uh, is Felix. It's FAA. He he went from um, 60 and 27 last year where I, I think like you and I, Grusk, were – having conversations after the year, like, look, the goal was very simple coming into 2022, win a title. Oh, he won four? Awesome. Like, this was a really good 2022 where it felt like some mental breakthroughs were made. He was playing with more emotion. Uh, seemed like he kind of just got out of his shell. Uh, everything was indoors. And that was the one area where, like, you kind of had an eyebrow raised and you were like, can you do this outside? Uh, but, yeah, it... It was a season where, I mean, until Basel, there was there was absolutely nothing. Um, and and even the Basel final, I I didn't, uh, or sorry, the Basel um, title, I was, uh, eh, I don't need to take anything away from it. Um, it. It was good. It's just he did have two players in the semis and the final completely physically collapse right in front of him in uh, in Runa and Hercotch. Yeah, that's a good pick, one that slipped from my radar. My question is always how much did injury impact Felix this season, and it's tough to ding a guy if that was the case. I was very encouraged by his level, even if the results weren't always there. Now, they did pick up for Felix at the end of the season, but I said it on the Laver Cup podcast we did. Even though it was a Laver Cup match, for the first time in a long time, I watched Felix impose himself with his forehand against Monfi, and it was just like, oh— it's good to see this gear still exists for Felix, and slowly but surely those results started to pick up. I mean, again, he almost fell outside the top 30. Like, it would have been really weird to see him unseated at a major, which he avoids with his finish to the year. I mean, you could just put him and Shapovalov on this list, two guys who it was a lot of nothing this year uh, for Canadian men's tennis. And that's really disappointing given they were the Davis Cup champions to end last season, felt like they had all this momentum and then the bubble burst. So not a bad player to put on the list, Gil. Do I lean Tsitsipas, Rude, Felix? They're all good choices. I mean, hmm. Make the case for Tsitsipas. Well, isn't it pretty obvious? It's that after the Australian Open, did he play a memorable match for you this season? Like the most notable storyline after his loss in the Australian Open final was Alcaraz giving him the business on clay and being like, all right, is this an unsolvable problem for Tsitsipas on clay, a guy who's been really good on clay courts? Is this unsolvable? And claiming he took melatonin before he played. (laughs) Well, it's it's all of these things. And then look, obviously, again, for him to figure out some things off the court, Mazel Tov to him and Bedosa. I hope that goes well for him moving forward. He wins Los Capos, disappears in the North American hardcore stretch after that. Really didn't do much and then has to withdraw due to injury at the ATP Tour Finals. He has a ton of points to defend right away in the season. And again, he falls outside of the top 10. Like 
would that shock you? What's the biggest difference between he and Hubie Hurkacz at this point? Like, I'm genuinely curious of two guys who can dominate with their serve when it's flowing, but you know how to attack each of them. Obviously, for Tsitsipas, it's through that backhand wing. For Hurkacz, pace through that forehand wing. Like, the game plan against Tsitsipas is so evident at this point, and there just hasn't been any adjustment. Like, 2024 is a massive season for a guy who's going to turn 26 next year like it's no longer all right you've got a long leash it's like no you're kind of in your prime right now Elkaraz is going to be a problem for you Sinner should be a problem with you with the pace that he plays with and it's just like yes when Tsitsipas is rolling he has the serve the forehand to keep pace can he disrupt those guys rhythm alongside of Medvedev Zverev who have obviously played very well throughout the course of their careers like things get tough for Tsitsipas moving forward I think they're all pretty similar cases. <sighs> I mean, I'm so trapped in the DK bubble because I've heard of the Casper Root speech so frequently this year that I'm going to retreat into my corner. I'm going to stick with Pass. I talked myself into it. I'll go to you next, DK. I've made the Pass speech too. I was making the yeah, Pass speech in February before, you invented he even, it. before he even started to really disappoint. I was already disappointed. Oh. So uh, you've, heard the, you've heard both cases. And I also will add that... Uh, talking about Felix, a player who peaked indoors and then wasn't able to replicate it the following season. Does that hit a nerve at all for any of us? Or <laughs> No, not really. No, no I guarantees. Mean, <laughs> I mean, again, I, I, it's a big January for Felix. No doubt about that. Last word to you, Gil. I mean, you guys thought, I, I wonder like, what was, what did you think Felix was going to do coming into the year? Because I had him obviously like dropping. I didn't buy that he was going to keep tearing it up like he did into our hardcore season. I don't uh, know. I kind of bought it. I was in. His serve, I, his forehand, they're so controllable. And it just feels like the backhand pace. Like when he is hitting through his backhand confidently, all the pieces start to fall into place for Felix. And he can just dominate on his terms so thoroughly. And you just can't fake that. Well, okay. First of all, you're you're making my argument. That's what I mean. Like you you bought it a little bit. You at least bought it enough to say Felix is is should be a top ten player yes. in 2023. And you know, as much as you could kind of lump him into the health thing, but like you compare him to Shapo, he's played like twice the events as Shapo. He has been playing. Um, so I I just feel like he's a more drastic case than Cecipas, which I agree. Like. He finished number six, but it felt so much worse than that. It felt so much more frustrating than that. Uh, and and for Rude, I mean, same thing because Casper, it just feels like you make one major final really helps your ranking. But what did it feel like? It felt like there was only like three weeks out of the season that were actually good. Yeah, I think that's fair. And again, tweet at us at DKTNNS, at Gil Gross, at AL Gruskin. What you are your picks for biggest disappointment for player of the year, et cetera, as we go through the categories. The next category is off script. We go to the best rivalries. Let's start with tier number two, the rivalries of the 2023 ATP season. Medvedev versus Clay slash Indian Wells. Medvedev versus Zverev. Rude versus Runa. Tsitsipas versus the second half of the year and Rublev versus the ATP Finals. Those are your Tier 2 best rivalries of the season. Tier number one, Alcaraz versus Djokovic, Alcaraz versus Sinner, Sinner versus Djokovic, 
and Medvedev versus fill in the blank because it just feels like he belongs in this conversation. He's always in the big matches. He's playing a sinner. He's playing an Alcaraz. He's playing a Djokovic in the final. Now, he's not always winning here in 2023, but Medvedev was in the mix a lot, so I just wanted his name in Tier 1 here somewhere. I'll start with you, DK. What's your best rivalry of the year? I don't know if it's a rivalry, but my favorite doubles team is Daniel Medvedev and any press conference. I feel like that's like a pretty like effective pairing that I want to see. I want to see them in Turin. I feel like that would be more interesting than some of the men's doubles teams. But I think objectively, the best rivalry is Djokovic-Alcaraz. And I think we all want to see more of that. And I think that's going to be the thing on which the ATP tour turns on is whether Alcaraz can really definitively get the upper hand on Djokovic. Right now, it seems very close to leaning still Djokovic, but you know, that Wimbledon final was was a lot. And uh, to the earlier points, we have uh, Roland Garros. We have the Olympics at Roland Garros. These are opportunities for Alcaraz to really flip that head to head. It's Brady Mahomes. It's just two guys opposite ends of the curve who are very, very good at their sport, clearly going to mean something historically. And we get to see them face off. It is absolutely a pleasure. Gil Gross, your best rivalry? Yeah, same. Uh, Alcaraz, Djokovic for sure. I, I even mentioned earlier in the podcast, it was unpredictable. And and you love that, right? Like, it would have been less fun, objectively, if Alcaraz went on clay and Djokovic went on grass. It would have been like, yep, that's what we thought. Uh, but no, uh, there was that. And honestly, I, I wasn't disappointed by the Roland Garros match at all. Like, obviously, uh, it would have been nice to get a complete match of two healthy players. That second set was one of the best sets of tennis I've ever seen. And then for us talkers, it was pretty interesting to just discuss and try to figure out what happened. And then to see the adjustment play out at Wimbledon when Alcaraz clearly fi- figured out a way to relax and enjoy the moment uh, a little bit better. Yeah, it wasn't as hot. Maybe it wasn't as physical, but he wins that in five, right? Just, just kind of cast aside the idea that he doesn't have the legs or the fitness to go five. No, he had it. He just needed to calm down and... um he was able to do that. Um, and then Cincinnati was just another total epic. One of the most topsy-turvy, twisty-turny matches that I can remember. They Every match they played, if you go back to last year in Madrid, was basically a 10. I know the Roland Garros one was a little weird. Until this year-end championship semifinal, which was uh, pretty much not interesting. I'm adding one more to tier two, Shelton versus Djokovic, that U.S. Open. The fact that Novak Djokovic (laughs) mimed the celebration of Ben Shelton, that Ben Shelton got to him in any sort of form, has to be included on the list. And by the way, DK, do you have any jokes for tier two? I want to open the floor to you. Any rivalries that I haven't mentioned that you'd like included? I mean, I did chuckle when Gil just now was talking about the second set between Djokovic and Alcaraz being the best set ever. It's just such an ATP thing to say of like the second set of a three set match in which one of the players was injured. But no, no, the second set was one of the best sets I've ever seen of all time. It's like you would never hear a WT person talk about a set of a of a straight setter be like, but no, that one set was amazing. It'd be like flop final, flop semi. <laughs> so it's like a very like a very very different kind of analysis. You know, you don't get that from WT. ATP is always like, no, no, you don't understand that fourth set that did not matter. Amazing. <laughs> you have to go back to it. <laughs> Those are my jokes. Those are my jokes. I mean, I also add that I was really disappointed that the um, uh, Rune Rude rivalry really uh, fizzled. I was looking forward to more, some more, more catty and I didn't get it. So hopefully more in 2024. 
Gil, you occasionally tell jokes. I know you like that ATP Tour Finals versus Andre Rublev because shout out to his destiny one and two at that event for the rest of time. You got any jokes for us? But that was just mean. I mean, I felt so bad for him this year. Yeah, he was so mad the whole time. Like he just didn't want to play tennis. Anyway, um, that was kind of tough. Um, jokes, rivalries. I was gonna say (laughs) back to you, Gruskin. (laughs) Perfect. That's exactly what we needed out of you. Let's go to my favorite category: DK's fear. That's the next gen prospects, twenty-one and under. Again, where are we right now as we look towards the future of the game coming off of twenty twenty-three? I have. Five guys in particular, but I'd say I'd go to a list of nine that I want to talk about in this 21 and under group. No, five guys who seriously I want to hear your thoughts on. The last four will just be honorable mention. I promise. Ruskin is about but, to name some people that I have never heard of. I just no, know it. Only, I feel it. No. There's only one name I'm 17 years with. old from the Czech Republic. You no, should have seen him at that Futures. He's look, that forehand. There's one name I'm concerned with. I'm not going to lie. But the rest I'm pretty comfortable with. All right. Top five next-gen ATP prospects. Again, 21 and under right now. Tier number one is Alcaraz and Runa. Alcaraz, obviously, two majors. I think Holger, it's win, not if. At some point in his career, he'll get there. He's a tier one guy for me. By the way, they can both play next-gen ATP finals next year. I just love that fact. Tier one and a half. Guys that I know are going to be top 25 players for the majority of their prime. I'm not quite ready to put them in slam championship tier, but they're certainly flirting with it. I have three in this category in the 21 and under group. I have Ben Shelton. I have Arthur Fee. And I still have Jack Draper in here. Yes, he had some injuries in 2023, but I really like what I've seen from the lefty. And again, we can get into that if you'd like. I'll save the other tier three guys for now. That's where we may get to a non-DK name. But those five right there, I mean, five top 25 players in that 21 and under group as I project moving forward. Gil, is that unreasonable? No, it's not unreasonable. I'm glad you have Draper in there. If he's healthy, he's going to be top 10, top 15. He's ready to do that next year. Like, I agree. He just needs to figure out how to play, uh, stay on the court and be healthy. And that, that that's all it is. Um, anyway. Do you, do you dispute the Shelton inclusion tier one and a half? Would you put him tier one, Arthur Fee tier one? Like, are you ready to go all the way? Arthur Fee I, is fascinating. Like, I'm again, so is Shelton. They both, it was opposite season. Sorry to talk over you. I'm asking you a question, but I want to talk instead and answer the question myself. <laughs> um, still a mini break. Fee did everything at the tour level, wins his first 250 title, makes another final on a different surface, makes a 500-level semifinal. Shelton didn't do that until the end of the season. He did it the other way. He had the big slam results. And again, it's the tale of two different ways to get into the top 35 for the first time in your career. Again, I also feel like both guys aren't even close to their best version of themselves yet. I'm almost ready to put them in tier one, but I'll put them one and a half for now. Is that unreasonable? Yeah, I mean, I'm higher on Shelton than Fees. Um, Ooh, I, I yeah. might go the other way. Like, when I watch Arthur, ugh, but carry on. I I just see, I see Fees as more of a baseliner, but I don't love the two-hander. I think the forehand is great. I think the backhand is, like, kind of average. Uh, and for a, for an athletic baseliner, I would like to see him a little bit more even. I, I know he's young. There's plenty of time. I think the serve... Uh, is really big for his height, which is great. But at, at the moment, he's not a guy 
especially outdoors, who's getting uh, a ton of purchase off of his serve. I just need to see a little bit more. Uh, Shelton and, and Runa to me are pretty similar. I know Holger at this point has has technically done more in terms of like volume of impressive feats, but both of them don't play smart tennis yet. Like they'll get there, but they play like their age. They make bad decisions all the time. And yet they are still able to have a lot of success because that's how damn talented they are. I, um, I like to see that out of a young player, uh, a player who's like doing everything super, super smart, maximizing, making all the right decisions. Let me give you an example. Alex Demonor, like if Alex Demonor as a 20 year old is like there, I'm still looking at the guy saying, wow, like great job. You're super smart. You're very physical. You compete great. Um, but where's your potential, right? Like Luka the weapons are Luca Van Asha, similar case. So Shelton and, and Runa, what, what's exciting is they're the opposite of that. They're making a lot of mistakes and still really good because that's how great their assets are. I agree with everything you said there, DK. Thoughts on that argument? Let's start there because then I have a follow-up question for you. Well, I'll just I'll just say that it's funny that it feels like just a big exercise to sh- throw some shade at Lorenzo Musetti, who's the only one of the top six. Next guy on young the guns you didn't mention. He's, <laughs> like, he's next a, on my a, list. A long way to go around to just avoid saying his name. I mean, I still feel like that there's a pretty big gap between Alcaraz and Rune and the rest. I think Runa has pretty much established himself when he's healthy as a consistent top eight, top ten guy. I don't quite feel that way about Shelton just yet. I mean, I look back at that US Open where he did some phenomenal things, but I do feel like things kind of fell into place for him to make that semifinal and then ultimately only did so much against Novak Djokovic. I mean, he mildly irked him and played a half a set, half a good set. I mean, it really was, I was expecting a lot more given the hype and given his obvious upside and weapons. So I don't, I wouldn't say next year. I would say maybe in the next 18 months to two years and probably the same for Artur Fis, who physically I feel like is probably even in better shape than young Alcaraz was before Alcaraz had his glow up. He's like already like jacked. So like, I feel like he's on a really big, big trajectory, but he still has a ways to go and, you know, to play a full season on tour. We still have to see that from him, but it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. It is probably very funny to think that Alcaraz and Runa could still be, are still next gen final eligible and uh, very unlikely. We'll see them do that again. Gil, do you have something there? Um, I think Shelton is going to be the best server in the world at some point. Yeah. And I don't think he's there now. I don't think he hits his spots that well. Um, I don't think that's a hot take either. Yeah. But so isn't like, where does that put his floor? Because he's a competent, he's also like competent in other areas. Right. So that's why, that's what I see with him. I don't see that straight line logic with feasts necessarily, but with Ben, it's like, you're going to be the best server in the world. Your forehand is actually good. It's a weapon, which for some reason, other than Isner, like everybody who serves big doesn't tend to follow it up with the forehand. Herkoch, Zverev, Medvedev, looking at some of those guys. Um, and he can move like I, I'm just I'm doing the addition here and it's very kind to Shelton. That's all. Last question to you both. We'll go DK, then Guild with the answers. Top fives. Which would you rather have? Alcaraz, Runa, Sinner, Shelton, Fee, or Zverev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Rude, Rublev, DK, then Gil. 
which lunch table am I sitting at? Next I Gen think I, 2.0 or the original crew? I, I mean, I think I would pick the first one. I mean, there are some interesting yeah. personalities I'd like to have lunch with the table too, but I don't know. It's some darkness and some sad times. I feel like I had for for table two. I feel like Medvedev will be looking to uh, to pal around with table one, try to try to jump ship as soon as he can. Gil, did yeah. table two officially surpa- uh, get surpassed? Now I'm all thrown off. Are we having lunch or trying no, to win majors? No, we're trying to win majors. <laughs> okay. I mean, lunch is a part of that. Sure, sure. I mean, who do yeah. you feel more comfortable hanging out with, basically? So, so Alcaraz, Alcaraz, and Runa are in table one, along with Sinner. Right. Okay. So it's all of them. It, that's this isn't close. This isn't hard at all. All right. Yeah. Uh, they, they, yeah, which is fine. It's just Alcaraz is a better player than all of them. Uh, Runa might be. Sinner might be. Uh, so, and I'm Sometimes talking Gruskin- like long term. Sometimes well, Gruskin asks trick questions, but the trick is that it's not a trick. No, the reason I ask that is because you look at this next-gen crew. It's just worth noting the future is bright. Like, this is the generation that's already present and having success. And that's why when we reflect on these top five prospects, it's worth re- reflecting on how good they are already. That transitions us to the Newcomer of the Year Award, and this is where we can throw some names at DK. He always loves to hear the actual nominees. And again, to be the Newcomer of the Year, you have to make a top 100 debut. Flavio Caboli, Arthur Fee, Alex Mickelson, Dom Stricker, Luca Van Asha. Those are the real nominees. My nominees. There's Tier 1, Arthur Fee, who's going to win this award. My other tier one is Ben Shelton, who, yeah, we knew here at Crack Rackets, but this is when he made his mainstream breakout. He should be eligible for this award. I think it comes up to a fee, Shelton. What do you value more, regular season or slam success? Tier two for me, guys, that I just have to keep an eye on moving forward because I think they could factor big picture, and I didn't know about them before. Dino Prismich, shout out to you, DK. I know that's the one. I knew you were. That's the one. No, Prismich is just baby Alcaraz. Like, you watch him play in the right light, and you're like, oh, that looks like Alcaraz used to look. Just trust me. Um, And then two is Mickelson, who once he gets physical, I mean, the tennis itself is not the question for Alex Mickelson. So that's tier two. Tier one, though, in my opinion, the debate we should be having is Fear Shelton. Gil, I'll go you first. Who's your newcomer of the year? Shelton, definitely Shelton. Just especially if we're looking like at narratively, like who did people care about? Who felt like a, a presence on tour? And uh, I, I really respect that, like Arthur Fees, his debut year on tour, uh, 19 years old, and he's making like 250 semifinals on the reg. That's super hard to do. Uh, it, it's not, it's not something to be brushed aside at all. But in terms of who announced themselves as like someone who everybody needs to pay attention to uh, and that people have opinions on now, it's Ben Shelton. Um, and yes, we we knew, but I don't know, like he, he won three challengers in a row to end last year. He beat Kasparud in Cincinnati. I don't know that we knew how long it was going to take. Like if he, if he kind of toiled this year outside the top uh, 60, wouldn't have been stunning. So I do think that Ben uh, kind of announced himself in a big way under the bright lights and proved himself to be a big match player, which, by the way, I think he's always going to be throughout his career. I don't think it's luck. DK? I mean, by your own logic, did Ben Shelton not win newcomer last year? Are we giving it to him twice in a row? Uh, again, it depends on whose qualities you want to use. I, like, if you're going I by mean, the it, ATP fashion, yes, he was eligible last year. Yeah, I mean, if we're living in reality, he would be my newcomer for this year. He would not yeah. have been my newcomer last year, just because back to some back of us, newcomer. Just because some of us new. 
happen to see this coming. Maybe they don't. I don't. I can't imagine they saw all of this coming. But I think whatever happened in 2022 for me was not sufficiently indicative of the year they ended up having. So for me, that would make him the newcomer. It was just a phenomenal debut starting from Australia and he carried it through through the US Open and then even won a title in Tokyo question mark yes right right yeah exclamation point okay awesome 500 yes. yep fantastic yeah so I mean yeah obviously the case for Arthur Fee is how far he started down the rankings to start the season you look for Arthur Fee at the end of last year he was 251 he's now 36 in the rankings and maybe that's most improved which we'll get to next here but I did not have him as a potential tier one prospect at all, not even sniffing it coming into the year. And that is a real conversation I'm going to have in December. I am as high on him as anyone coming out of this year. The weapons are real. I like his backhand. I had this discussion with Damian Kust on the Great Shot podcast this week. So if listeners want to hear more on that, they can go check it out. But I might see, I was more aware of Shelton. So I would have leaned fee. You guys both go Shelton in this category. I think it's a very fun race and both very much deserving. Let's go to most improved next. The actual nominees for this category, Yannick Sinner, Ben Shelton, Chris Eubanks, obviously winning an ATP title. What he did at Wimbledon, certainly making his top 50 debut belongs on this category. The Italian Matteo Arinaldi, fourth round U.S. Open, helps clinch the Davis Cup for the Italians. He is the final actual nominee. I'm going to go through tier two. Hatchinov, Demonauer, Paul, Umber all made notable improvements this year. They're not going to be the most improved, but that's my tier two. Now, my tier three is so expansive. It's a bunch of guys with career highs. We'll tweet it out because DK is making a face at me that's having me a little bit scared. Here's tier number one. Arthur Fee, Ben Shelton, Yannick Sinner, and I put Grigor Dimitrov because he's just back and better and more improved, better than ever, Gil. That's my tier one. Those are my four nominees. I'm going to start with DK because he's making a face at me, actually. Who do you go with? Well, I'm making a face because I find it funny that you present us a list and then you present your own list and then yeah. kind of just go. My list is better <laughs> than the actual list. I know, but I feel like I kind of liked the ATP list. Uh-huh. Like it felt pretty. Sinner, it felt like Shelton, it, it, felt like it summed Arnaldi. everybody up. Like, yeah, I Fair. mean, like it. There was someone random there for you. There was Ronaldi. There was like an American guy. There was Eubanks. I feel like it really covered all the bases. I mean, I kind of feel tempted to give it to Eubanks because I feel like I, who would have ever saw him even, yes, beating Sitsipas on grass, but still, I mean, it was the, the way that he did it. It was such a phenomenal, I mean, a guy who was pretty much transitioning off of tour to come, you know, he was coming for Gil's job. So I feel like he's relieved that, you know, <laughs> he's playing better on the tennis court now. Um, so for the fact that he went from basically being a part-time player to a top, you know, 40, 50 guy, I mean, that's, you got to give him, I would love space for him on this ballot. So I'm going to give it to him. All right, Gil. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, like, good for Shelton and Sinner, whose, you know, improvements were really cool to watch this year. Uh, a lot of it happening midseason. But it's that's not quite as fun as the 26-year-old who just hasn't been able to crack the top 100. And what's funny about this year for, for Eubanks is it, it was almost like he had the moment and then he had the real moment. Like, we thought his moment was in Miami. He beats Gregoire Barrere, and it's like, top 100. You did it, man. Like, this is it. He's uh, sobbing. Right, exactly. It felt like it felt like he kind of reached the, I don't know, for lack of a better term, pinnacle of what he was trying to do. Uh, and then a couple months later, that feels so small. Like, yeah, he cracked the top 100. Try being seated at slams now uh, because you, you know, you made the Wimbledon quarterfinal and you, you went on that massive run on grass. 
I'm sorry. I, I don't like to uh, refer to zooms on this audio. Yeah, what podcast, was that thumbs up emoji? Yeah. Did you get a message? My, my hands were here. I wasn't even by the keyboard. He I really just started, agreed with your point, Gil. I saw it really floating, and I was it. like, "Yeah, yeah." Well, I, I, I mean, I started it, so yes, by all means, well, continue to agree with me. Let's let's describe the action. As I was talking, a floating bubble thumbs up yeah, just good. went into DK's box. I thought it was by design. I thought it he was, was saying really, agree. I, no, I, there are some people who are get very creative with these on Zoom, uh, on Zoom, on Teams and Zoom, and I am not one of them. So I, I don't know. That was spooky. So I feel like at this point we should just move on to the next category because well, here's why you're the, both the wrong. thumbs have it. Here's why you're both wrong because Yannick Sinner has to be on this ballot. What Yannick Sinner did to end the season and his rise into that tier one category is something you will remember from this 2023 year. Most improved him making that leap, beating Djokovic the way he did to end this season. That matters to me. He is the most improved player in the most significant way this year. So he is my pick. But I like the case you both made for Eubank. So I'm not going to knock you there. We'll move on to our penultimate award category here two to go i promise we are almost done with our award show comeback player of the year actual nominees dominic kopfer who had fallen outside the top 100 but the former ncaa number one ranked player back inside the top 100 comfortably gael monfi he is another comeback player of the year jan leonard Struff, who of course put together one of the best April May runs we've seen in quite some time and Sasha Zverev who of course is coming off of ankle injury my comeback players of the year tier two um Baron Manorino tier one Dimitrov Zverev I'll go to you first Gilgros who's your comeback player of the year what are these players in your list coming back from like what is Dimitrov coming back from irrelevant this, this is starting to feel like a running <laughs> gag where we just put Dimitrov and he every... belongs here somewhere he's my comeback player of the year we can just spoil it now this is, this I needed very, to get him on this ballot <laughs> every ballot Grigor Dimitrov just happens to find this I'm just every saying this I couldn't believe how well suspicious. he played this year I was done with that era I just like we didn't need to see it anymore and then he was just he was present at every event he played exceptional level no bad losses it was just a level I didn't expect from him at all to see this season. And it was the thing that maybe surprised me the most of any player we saw this year. Like Umber Manorino, they made top 30 pushes. They were both exceptional. And their levels, again, unexpected. So they came back to a level that we have seen earlier in their career, but I didn't see it coming. So I wanted them reflected in my ballot. But I'm going Dimitrov because it feels icky to give it to Zverev. DK? Um, oh God, there was, oh, Monfils. I would give it to Monfils. Okay. I feel like, again, someone who we thought was pretty much done, still had some phenomenal results this year, managed to read Labor Cup to fill like highlights throughout the season. So I would, I would really say it, the tour is so much better when he's playing a part of it and he's within the tapestry. So I, I was glad to see him come back. And Gilbert. for me, pretty oh, clear. Okay. I like started to see a lot of definitive people go the other way and was confused by that. Fair enough. Gil Gross. I got Lamont too. Thirty-seven. See, we're soulmates. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, coming off of uh, coming off of uh, a layoff as long as as it was at his age, and then even dealing with like some some slight setbacks upon immediately returning. I think he came back and um, went on a, a massive losing streak. Uh, let's see, lost his first one, two, three, four matches, uh, five, six, seven completed matches of the year. And yeah, like we were definitely starting to, to write the Monfils tour obituary, weren't we? And then he comes back after like this pretty crazy, one of the one of the wildest matches of the year uh, at, at Roland Garros against Sebastian Baez. 
has to withdraw um, in the next round. Suddenly he has this huge summer, wins in Stockholm, and that made it like 17 or 18 years in a row where Monfils has made at least a final where it looked like that record was toast. And I, I just think it's such a good representation of his longevity. And as DK said, not only is it like a surprise that Monfils got to the level that he got to, it's also a really pleasant surprise because everybody is happy when that happens. Both great arguments. Five players, top 15, and both hold and break percentage. The three top 10, Djokovic, Sinner, Alcaraz, top 15, Medvedev, and... Grigor Dimitrov. So I stand by my <laughs> argument. He's my comeback player of the year. But again, I am not going to knock the Lamont pick. Well, for our final category of the 2023 ATP Award Show, Westoff, give me a drum roll, please. It is our most intriguing player entering the offseason. Now, again, it's an arbitrary category. You guys are both allowed to pick whomever you would like. I'll start with you, Gil. Who would you follow this offseason? Who's your most intriguing? I think it's Rafa and Nick. I think mm-hmm. I, I know I started the podcast talking about those two. Full circle. Yeah. Is this the one thousand foot view or are we going fifteen thousand here? What are you thinking? This is like a hundred foot view. We're <laughs> we're like not very far off the ground okay. here. And we're we're locked in. Um those are the guys who it it's a big mystery about kind of are they gonna factor in like maybe they did two years ago, or are they not? Um, because the the talent is there. It's they're vastly different in so many ways. But it, but I also think they're positioned in the same way. Where if you told me you're in top eight finish um, for both of them, it would be what like uh, a surprise because it would mean they were healthy enough to do it, and. If, if you're going to say right now that they are going to be healthy, you think that it's completely reasonable, utterly reasonable that they're able to do it. Not to mention, look, Rafa, it doesn't matter how he plays. It's going to be delightful to watch, um, watch him play. And the reason for that is nobody's going to take it for granted. Uh, it's the thing that Federer fans were robbed of. Roger fans never got to look at Roger and be like, okay, let's appreciate it right now because this is coming to a close. And hopefully that's what Rafa fans are going to get this year. DK? Is it sacrilege, DK? Is it sacrilege that I'm like grouping them together? And Nick and Kyrgios? Or rather, Nick and Kyrgios. Rafa and Kyrgios? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think that those are those are two very, you know, according to stats and certainly according to Nick himself, they, would, they are two of the most important <laughs> players in men's <laughs> tennis. And if they are the ones to watch and... There are certainly ones capable of clearly making deep runs at slams. You know, Rafa has a very long storied history of doing that. And and Kyrgios is, a, is was starting to build that trend and then obviously gets injured and spends most of the year off. Um, it was interesting to see him in the booth, you know, the last couple of weeks at TC. I feel like an interesting decision. You know, what is he to why, you know, is he scouting the field? Is he trying on a new hat? You know, what is the long game for, for someone like Nick who has, you know, Fingers in a lot of different pots, you know, whether it's podcasting or business or now commentating in addition, all in addition to tennis, which he's often said is not, you know, always his first love, first priority. So it'll be interesting to see if if and when he comes back, what he, what that looks like. I mean, I'm very curious to see the offseason between Holger Runa and Boris Becker. I feel like that's I, I feel like my eyebrows went up when the partnership was announced and it felt like it immediately paid some dividends. And obviously Becker has a lot of experience um, and I feel like. 
stylistically, Djokovic and Runa are not that dissimilar. And so given the success that Becker had with Djokovic, I'm curious to see what he can impart onto Runa. Um, so yeah, that's that's one I'm really interested to see. Both fantastic choices. I almost feel ashamed saying anything after that beautiful poetic waxing from Gil on all things Rafa and the poetry of it all. Finally, Rafa fans getting the closure they so deservingly uh, require. Who is the player I, mean, I, I would pick? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, I mean, I will say that like towards the end with Federer, I mean, if, if you didn't think it was sure. the end when he was losing that match to Hubert Hurkacz, then you're a little naive. I mean, obviously you didn't have the, the, the big land, you know, the, the runway of I'm going to retire, but it certainly seemed like it was moving in one direction. Yeah. But he was the favorite in that match coming in. Well, he wasn't coming out of it. (laughs) (laughs) People forget. There's a lot of revisionist history about that Federer Wimbledon. The hype train was on Mm -hmm. like after Manorino injured himself. uh, And I think Adrian should have probably won that match, but then he got hurt. But then when Federer, Federer, beat nori in straights and it was like okay he's fine this is it's happening. Hercots. come on like we we don't have to worry um yeah i i agree with you gil i do think there's some revisionist history as you look back at that i would go seatsy because man if not next year like if things don't the ship doesn't correct i'm ready to abandon ship pretty quickly and i think uh I wouldn't surprise me to see a, a fleet on mass dk has has he touched a racket that's a good question. To ask. I'm unclear if he's actually like been working at it. I don't know. I the, the two of them I feel like ultimately are kind of where they belong, you know, and that's not a bad thing. They're both like, you know, cool, attractive people and they found each other and they're in a great relationship. I don't know necessarily not everyone needs to be a Grand Slam champion to be successful in life. So I feel like maybe this is a nice off ramp for the both of them, to be honest. But but I will say, I guess two things. Uh, there were some signs to me that Steph had lost some drive before the Bedosa thing. Um, like there were matches last year where I was kind of calling it out where it's like, okay, effort level, not a hundred, um, which was strange to see because Tsitsipas, when he first came on, was ferocious as a competitor, especially against top players. And now it seems like sometimes when he goes up against Alcaraz and Djokovic, there's resignation setting in uh, really quickly. It's, again, a fascinating offseason for many different players, and we will continue to explore them throughout the course of the month. Of course, hopefully we will have both of you back on the podcast to do so as well. That said, that'll do it for our 2023 ATP Award show. Again, if you missed our WTA version, just scroll down in your mini break podcast feed. Gilgros, I'm going to start with you. What's on the horizon? All things Monday match analysis in the Gilgros offseason. Uh, Monday match analysis awards. Less people will be on that one. Uh, it'll be, you know, it's a little different flavor. Okay, Let, watch both, everybody. Uh, it's it's room for room for different room for everything, everybody and everything. Um, and then for fans of Gruskin uh, who who don't like me, um, I'm having Gruskin on the show. We're gonna run through the ATP top twenty rapid fire real quick, just to hit on everybody. Uh, mailbag, season-ending mailbag. You got another thumbs up from DK for having me on the show. So again, everyone approves. Carry on, Gil. Mailbag is live. Yeah, that's where we can see them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Year-end mailbag is live as well on the YouTube channel. 
Always a pleasure to watch and get the chance to appear on the Monday Match Analysis show. No one is better than the Gilgros commentators on YouTube. So looking forward to being on there. DK, what can we expect from you in the Tennis.com team? I mean, the Zoom is really just like putting me on Main Street. Every time Gil says something, I get a big thumbs up pop up. It's really it's unsettling. Please. I can hit on it myself. I don't need Zoom to do it for me. It's fine. Presumptuous. Um, what am I working on? There's, um, yeah, I think a couple of things I've already talked about. My my Ludmilla Samsonova feature, Barbara Stritzova feature. I have a, did an interview with Heidi Eltabach uh, from Team Canada that'll be coming out at some point. Um, we finished up our top five ATP WTA players of the year series as of, I believe today, if not tomorrow, or by the time this comes out, it'll already be out. And um, we'll also be tackling... 10 to 12 burning questions for 2024. A lot of interesting roundtable stuff, easily digestible and all coming out before the start of the season. So you all have that to look forward to. Love it. As always, at Gross at DKTNNS to follow more from them. Of course, a thank you from all of us to our Cracked Racket super producer, Daniel Westhoff, who, as always, has what sort of job to do, DK? I mean, he does a thumbs up of an editing, editing job. Day in, day out makes everything possible. Thank you to him. A thank you as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, that's award show season for the Pro Tours for now. From the fantastic David Kane and Gil Gross, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Gentlemen, what do we tell our listeners? That's the break. break. Yeah, it's much better than round one. I appreciate it, gentlemen. (laughs) We rehearsed it. Yeah, we will see you all next time. Thank you as always. Pleasure. Thank you.